0: March 30th, uh, 2014, lecture discussion number 149 on the Book of Romans. And before we begin, I, I you can't help but talk about this. I want to take a time, take a little time to address the military movements and the motives of Russia. Russia is an end times event in the sense that Russia does things that tell us that the age of the Gentiles is about to be over. And they have an opportunity to do it. I'll get to that in just a second. But as you know, the Roman army has begun to amass on the Ukrainian border subsequent to their annexation of the Crimean Peninsula. They took Crimea because it is a naval port of great strategic advantage for them. It does not freeze. And so they now have that uh, that naval uh, port in the south that naval capability in the south and so now they're now that they've done that they're threatening to move across ukraine and they have done devastating things to the ukraine in the past the russians have the ukrainian people the whole of the more all kinds of things you should uh, be aware of and their their intentions are not uh good they never have been they won't be this time i think they're going to uh, seize half of it uh, we'll find out if i'm right But I believe he wants to control the easiest half, which has the most Russian-speaking people in it. He'll go there as fast as he can, and then he'll do what he has to do at some point if he's not stopped. So I think the control, at least half, is what he's currently up to or presently up to. No one, certainly not Europe, is prepared to stop Russia. Uh, Europe's uh, militarily is so inferior, they could not... Deal with Russia at all, they'd just be a, um, an insignificant force against the, uh, the Russian military, and that includes France and, and England. On the other side of that, of course, uh, Russia controls almost half of the natural gas that heats Europe and provides its uh, its manufacturing base. So the, their energy pipelines. So what is uh, Europe going to do? By the way, why hasn't Europe got uh, military to defend themselves? Because they depend on somebody else to defend them. Who is that? That's the United States. That's correct. So that's a big problem for them now, isn't it? Because the United States is quickly demonstrating its inability or its unwillingness to defend Eastern Europe. We haven't done anything yet. I don't expect that we will, because I, I think prophecy demonstrates the United States is doing it will do exactly what it is doing. It will back out. And that's not to be looked upon as a trivial or unimportant um, aspect of this. That's a new development, the weakness of the United States. It's either weak uh, actually. Because Some will say it's because of our economic situation. We don't have the ability economically to to uh, continue funding the military necessary to defend Europe or, or fight two or three fronts at the same time. Uh, that could be, or it is intended purposely. So it's either real uh, and it has an economic base or the economic uh, issue is just simply an excuse. But in other words, I'm saying the United States could be complicit in some regard here. But the weakness, regardless, irrespective, has great consequences. Russia has intentions to dominate the Middle East at some point. That's Ezekiel 38. At least attempt to. And the Crimean ports are obviously valuable to that end, as is the Ukrainian energy assets. It remains to be seen if our current governmental administration has decided to abandon the Ukraine to the Russians. If they have done that, if so, I submit that this will be a pivotal, pivotal moment in the last hundred years. The United States abdicating its role as a force, a defender of the weak. And then, of course, if that happens, the, the, everything else after that will be inevitable. Because what will be the next act of, of aggression then? There will be a next act of aggression. The evil loves a vacuum. The United States creates a vacuum. Who will be the next to move? Speculation is already out there. Most expected China. If Russia succeeds in taking half of the Ukraine, China will start seizing different islands that surround it. Which one would be the most likely place to go? Who else are we pledged to defend? Just guess—they're going to move. They're very powerful. Uh, as Russia moves, it'll be a—it'll be a feeding frenzy, I, I believe. I think Iran will be emboldened, and then, of course, who will be become preemptively thinking? They already are preemptively thinking. Who will have no choice if China moves? Iran begins to flex. Turkey goes after the Kurds again. I think Israel will recognize the withdrawal of the United States, and they're going to act preemptively. I'll be stunned if they don't. And in a very, very short time, the world could just explode. And that will be Ezekiel 38, or the precursors to it. And this, uh, the, the world being a cauldron, a boiling cauldron, has happened before. But this time, there's something different. What's different this time? It really is a nation of Israel this time. It actually exists. That's the first time that this has happened. The first time in history the, the countries or the pieces of Ezekiel 38 exist with the capabilities and the predispositions to fulfill all of those magnificent prophecies. We have it in your lifetime. And it's never been before. And uh, you can absolutely guarantee it that Russia is going to come south against Israel at some point. And they're going to do it when the end of the time of the Gentiles is near. The time of the Gentiles started when? 586 B.C. with Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians taking Israel. That began the time of the Gentiles and it is slated to end. One of the events that tells us it's about to end is Ezekiel 38. Okay? So, whenever Russia moves, pay attention. Last Sunday, uh, pretty much went exactly as I anticipated. A one-hour, four-minute saliva secretion extravaganza. More drool per square foot than the previous cliffside record by far. New Grace Church called... And thought we shampooed the carpet. That's how. And I told them that we did, and they thought we were very helpful and considerate. Why not roll with it? <laughs> but um, nonetheless, all in all, it was a reasonable beginning to Einstein's principles of relativity. I'm actually quite pleased with it. Uh, Having done this a lot, I I know in order for the morale of the lecturer to to exist, the key to doing these types of things, especially in a church environment, is to have low expectations. The lower the better. Start with low and then lower them. uh, That sums up the motto of teaching physics. Uh, I I understand that. So with with that in mind, uh, let's survey the carnage. Think George C. Scott in Patton. It's important to keep in mind what the purpose is, what I'm trying to do, what, what I think the purpose should should, because you see there there's these challenges that await us. For the evolutionist, he's got problems. He's got cosmic microwave background radiation, cosmic microwave background radiation. Now it seems difficult, but eventually you'll start to get these terms understood. You'll recognize the Abbreviations but the evolutionist has this cosmic microwave background radiation problem and it, what the reason it's a problem as I've been discussing is that it brings there's temperature uniformity in the entire universe approximately two point seven degrees Kelvin or three degrees Kelvin and how did I get that temperature uniformity and they it, this radiation is everywhere in the universe. It is also universal or ubiquitous in the universe. And so there's a relationship between cosmic microwave background radiation and this temperature uniformity. The only mechanism that exists, the fastest mechanism that exists uh, that would uh, to communicate this ther- thermal equilibrium throughout the entire universe is the speed of light. And uh, you know, there's um, energy mass equivalence, right? Speed of light is reflected as C. That's the fastest way to communicate thermal information all throughout the universe to achieve this equilibrium. And Einstein says that nothing is faster than the speed of light. Nothing. And the overwhelming majority of physicists, uh, if any disagreed with that, they wouldn't say it. Now, of course, I went on record as saying I think there is something faster than the speed of light. I think that that something is the creator of the speed of light. Now, that's another lecture, more philosophical than, than uh, physics. Speed of light, 300,000. I'm sorry, three hundred million meters per second. I always do that and I should say kilometers when I say three hundred thousand, but I I prefer to say three hundred million meters per second. Again, nothing is faster. How old did they say the universe is? Approximately fourteen billion, thirteen point eight billion years old. And three hundred million meters per second is 186,000 miles per second, if you prefer, is not fast enough to communicate thermal equilibrium in 14 billion years. It's not even close. Mathematics fail. There's no way I can transfer all the heat that came from the Big Bang, and that's the paradigm that they utilize now. I can't transfer all of that heat from the origin point to the edges throughout the entire universe. It's not possible. Light is not fast enough. That is the problem. So what did the evolutionist do? If you were here last week, he constructed inflation theory. And he's in an attempt to defend the Big Bang position from the quasi-steady-state proponents. And I call the quasi-state, steady-state people, I call them statists. They don't like that. They don't think it's funny. It's way too subtle, I know. You don't think it's funny either. Because there's, there's other kinds of status. And status and evolutionists don't like my associative humor at all. But I submit that Marx and Engels were delighted with evolutionary monism, Marxism loves evolutionary theory. Darwinianism, quite pleased with what Darwin conceived they were. You would think that alone would have ended evolutionary philosophy, but it did not. Monism is relentless. Anyway, cosmic inflation theory attempts to address this problem. It's called the what? Do you know, do you know, do you know? Test on Friday? Yes, horizon problem. See when I do that? Called the horizon problem of light, of the speed of light. By the way, the people on the internet think that you answered the question and they're so intimidated. So just ro- roll with that. <laughs> So cosmic inflation theory, they have to address this problem, and so they in doing so, um, they came up with cosmic inflation uh, uh, theory, and they concede in that theory that the universe is stretching out, and that's so important. They actually use the exact words, stretching. There's a stretching in the fabric of the universe. And they also concede that there is a current expansion. Now, there's a difference between the current expansion of the universe and the stretching out of the universe. Those are different terms. They mean different things. And so that's extraordinary that they concede that space has been stretched out, which, by the way, is a marvelous description, is a biblical description. They absolutely say that what the Bible says with regard to space is true. The Bible says that that space has stretched out. And that is the cosmic inflation theory. It is as if the person that read the, the Bible put his theory inside of it. And then tried to make it a natural event instead of an intelligent agency. And the Big Bang people, the Big Bang theorists, also concede something else with their Big Bang. They concede that there is a beginning to the universe. That's extraordinary. That's why the quasi-steady-state people hated this position. QSSC, quasi-steady-state creationism. They hated that you could not have... A beginning to the universe. Because if you have a beginning to the universe, then you have a beginning to something else. What do you have? Something else begins. Very critical. You have this. Yes, everybody in the auditorium knew that if you're listening on the internet. Okay. A few of the ones that are still awake knew it. There's a beginning to time. My sister, as my mother was, uh, as her body was perishing from Alzheimer's, would play my lectures for her. I don't know if you knew that. She would put her in a chair and turn on my lectures because it helped her sleep. And my sister was also hoping that I was getting some kind of family vengeance by tormenting her simultaneously. I don't know why that came up, but... It, isn't it. it is the role of the church, I say often, it is the role of every pastor to provide rest for his congregation. You work hard all week, and if I can put you to sleep, then I'm doing you great benefit. As you know, I've always wanted to have what instead of these? We have captain's chairs here. I wanted to have lazy boys, absolutely. I wanted you to recline, we'll put some audio system right there, give you a blanket. Cookies and milk, and if you passed out, well, then that was a benefit to you. At least you got something. I never could understand why other pastors have not glommed on to my concept. How come I am so isolated in this fraternity? But anyway, the point is, is that a beginning to the universe and the beginning to time, uh, that concession is not beneficial. Those are not beneficial facts to evolutionary theory, and they are now established uh, facts. But the, but the evolutionists, on the other, stand, other hand, as uh, demonstrated in the ham nigh debate, they insist that intelligent agency, God, an intelligent mind, a, a mind that we can't conceive, They they insist that our position uh, cannot account for the distant starlight reaching the earth within 10,000 years, because they have a speed of light problem with regard to temperature equilibrium. They say that we have a speed of light problem with respect to the ability to see the light um, from stars that are, are thousands of light years away from us. The distant starlight time problem is what it is called, because light has a constant speed and that speed cannot be violated. So because of that, that is why that we have to go into Einstein's relativity principles. I think that if you have a fundamental understanding of Einstein's relativity theories, special relativity and special relativity, not necessarily in that order, you will you will begin to be able to uh, reason your way through the distant starlight uh speed of light problem and that is why you, that we eagerly uh trudge into uh, general relativity and i know that eagerly and trudge don't usually accompany one another But as as an aside, a really quick aside, this isn't the only thing that creationism or the intelligent agency position or intelligent design, whichever one you want to use, this isn't the only problem that uh, that we're thrown at or that that they throw at us. Uh, Creationism or creationists are obliged to explain other things. We have entropy in the entire universe. The Bible says, though, by the way, that the entire universe groans. Why does the entire universe groan? If if the issue is mankind, or if you want to add Satan's fall, how is it that the entire universe has gone in towards randomness or entropy as it's decaying? We have to explain that, and creationists also uh, we have uh, are I think required to answer the attack defense structures in animals. I have animals that have um, that have. Oh, I got something buzzing here. Let me. Could you mute? uh, It's this one. Okay, that occasionally bleeds into this microphone and goes all over the internet. But but we have animals: armadillo, poisonous snakes. Uh, Where did those? Attack, uh, those defense structures come from and those attack structures come from they certainly weren't necessary at the time of creation how did they come into being some things like canine teeth um, you as, uh, as pointed out in the debate uh, many be- people understand that uh, we have bears that have tremendous attack defense structures their claws, their strength their, their jaws, power uh, but, and they uh, eat berries and they have the stomach capability of, of eating fruits. Uh, They're herbivores as well as carnivores. So are we, human beings. But how did all of that occur? And, then, um, and when did it occur? Was it a supernatural act? Was entropy in the entire universe a supernatural event? It, when you begin to say that God intervenes and does this uh, supernaturally, that brings you under more um, attack, if you will. Because then they say that you're just simply using God as a magic bullet to answer all the questions. Non-falsifiable. So we'll get into that uh, as well as insects. When did insects come into, into existence? And then how did the mortigenic factor in animals um, occur? Why did animals die? That's the question. I understand the federal headship of Adam, but we were talking about this recent movie that's come up. This um, um, the least biblical movie ever written about or ever done about the Bible. Apparently, is what the producers and the directors are calling, or or the authors. I predict that that's absolutely the case, and I shouldn't uh, attack it without seeing it. But um, that's never stopped me before. Point is, is that there are questions like insects, mortogenic factors. Why didn't God just lift the animals up, blow the earth to pieces, set the animals back down, and start all over again with humanity? Why did He use H2O, two parts hydrogen and two parts oxygen? Why did He do that? I'm sorry, one part oxygen. Why did He use water? He could have used anything as i've said before his word he does that in revelation why did he use water and why did he allow the animals do i have a contamination issue if so what was why were those animals contaminated why couldn't he have lifted them up decontaminated them much like he will do to us at the rapture for example or at the resurrection and set them back down why was it necessary for all of this death? Because he, he says he also promises uh, with the, uh, with the, in the Noahic Covenant that he won't do it again this way. Those are important questions, but not for today. Today, but that's why we're, we're uh, doing relativity, so that we can answer those questions. Today, we're going to do Isaiah 42.1. You will find it valuable to know everywhere in the Bible that these kinds of discussions are held. The Bible is filled with it. And it starts out in 42. I'll read it. You don't have to. It starts out with the word, <clears throat> Behold my servant. In other words, something incredible is going to come after the word, Behold, Isaiah 42.1. Behold my servant. The fact that God has a servant. And it's and it's him. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and, and smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged. So if you ever have a position of Christ, who is God in the flesh, ever failing or ever being discouraged, you're being told out right there in Isaiah 42 that you're wrong. He was never discouraged. He can't be discouraged. Why not? He's God. He's omniscient. Discouraged and omniscient do not coincide. Till he has established justice in the earth and and the coastlands shall wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out. Einstein's theory, relativity, as I would expect, if it's true. Who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people, on it and spirit to those who walk on it. So, God created the universe and he stretched it out. So, there's a difference between creating it and stretching it out. You can ask the why on both times. Why did he create the universe? What's his his purpose? He likes to create. That may be all that you end up with. I think it there's more to it than, than just that, though that's profound. But he also stretched it out. Why did he stretch it out? Because when he stretches it out, he causes things to occur. He affects time. Does he know it? Yes he does. And then it says in that uh, in that Context in that verse that notice what he put together. He put created the universe, stretched it out, gives life. There's your inviolate law of biogenesis. Life only can come from life. And in this case, life came from the life. He is the life. So God is the source of life. So those three things are tied together. And then he spreads life over the entire earth so he stretches the universe out and he spreads life and notice that biological life and spiritual life is adjacent with creating the universe he put them all together space matter energy and time is together with biological life and then the stretching out of the universe the context implies that there's a logical progression a connection between those elements what's the connection why did he put them together why is stretching out the universe and giving a spirit or a soul and breath to his physical creation? Why, do they, why are they together? And it's also within the context of God that we started out with God coming to do what? 42.1 He's coming to save his creation. So it's in context with salvation. The giving of life, the giving of breath, the stretching out of the universe, the creating of the universe, all of that is in the context, the initial context, the thing that comes after behold of God himself coming to save. So again, his gifts that he gives us. He gives us existence. And he gives us salvation. Those are both there again. If you were here a few weeks ago, I said there's two great gifts of God. There are more than that. But of the two that that I, that I really like to pound in, he gives us existence. Inside of existence, of course, is free will. And he gives us salvation. I wrote it right there. That's why I'm beating on the board right there. I erased it earlier. In case you think I'm crazy, like the guy who wrote that letter. And yes, sir. Uh, the, um, I should tell you at this point, a person who is to remain unidentified who sent me a letter with regard to uh, very complex um, uh, teaching that you do, I read your letter without any identity of any kind being revealed, nor did I let anyone know where or who you were, Uh, and you know who I'm talking about, sir, but I just wanted to read it because um, it made me laugh. Especially the part where you would like to listen to me do this all the time. Okay. I just wanted to let him know. Okay, so existence and salvation connected again. Let's uh, now consider a, a, a few other things. Something that is very misunderstood and I'm going to clear it up for you today. When you go home... And your friends call you up today and said, What was the sermon about? It's an opportunity for you. We're going to talk about gravitational force. Let's just say gravity for for short. Is it a particle? Is it a wave? Is it both a particle and a wave? How fast is gravity? We're into Newtonian, Newtonian physics here for a second because Isaac Newton, a brilliant man of God, a, a brilliant man period, but certainly a brilliant man of God. He described gravity as a force between distant objects. He said it was a force and it was, had, had distance involved between objects. When you bring distance into the, the equation, then you're into what? Yeah, you're into time, oops, and you're into relative distance. We'll get to that in a minute. Back to Newton. Newton said, for example, the earth and the moon. I have a force between the earth and the moon. I have a force between the earth and the sun. Newton said, I have a force between the earth and, say, me. Me being me, if you're listening. Though Mr. Newton probably didn't know me. But there's force between me and the Earth. We're two objects, and we have very little distance between each other, but watch me create distance. Is that amazing? Yes, I'm amazing. Go ahead and say so. In Newton's theory, the force of gravity somehow reaches across empty space to hold the moon in orbit. And Newton saw this, by the way, as an instantaneous event. In other words, he is saying that gravity is an instantaneous force. So how fast is it in, uh, in Mr. Newton's concept? It's faster than light. If the force of gravity is instant, uh, obviously now he and Einstein are thinking differently. Because Einstein says the speed of light is supreme. Nothing is faster than the speed of light. And it's good that that's the case, by the way. We'll get into that today, I hope. If not, certainly next week. Instant is faster than 300 million meters per second. And so Newton and his instantaneous gravitational force immediately is in conflict and violates the limit that is the speed of light. And so this becomes a great big rut roll. That's a technical term. There's two T's in rut. And row, of course, as it's always spelled. Some people will put a W before each, but I've never been able to do that. In 1907, Einstein asserted that gravity was not evident. Let me repeat that. Einstein said that gravity was not evident in certain frames of reference. Huh? Have some caffeine. In other words, I can, being super amazing, slightly balding overweight uh, pastor, I can place myself into a frame of reference where gravity cannot be detected. And people, whenever I've said this in the past, they say, really? And I say, don't use really when you're talking about relativity. You'll learn not to use the word really anymore. It's the number one way to get teenage girls from stop saying like and really. Teach them about relativity. In other words, I, again, this powerful, overweight, aging, balding man, can insert myself into a position where it is impossible to know if gravity exists. Certainly impossible to know if gravity is present. I have that kind of capability. I can put myself into a frame of reference where I do not feel the effects of gravitational force at all. And in fact, can't even tell if gravity is present. And guess what I could do? I am so powerful, I can take you with me. And I can put you all in the same frames of reference. It's amazing, I know. I am the amazing this is my nickname. They asked me one time, I can barely say it without laughing. I will not say it out loud. They asked me at a pastor's meeting, what is your congregation? What did they call you? Every Did all you pastors have a nickname and then what did they call you? This is what I told them, you should have seen their faces. Okay. Anyway, this is why you have to come here and not listen on the internet. I want you to imagine that you and I are in a free-falling state. We have jumped out of a perfectly functional aircraft, which I would never do. Steve Cronister jumps out of a perfectly functional aircraft is murder. I have been pushed. We did not do it except for the sake of this thought experiment, but I have taken all of you and we have jumped out together, or just me and Bonnie, or where's Jane? Did she leave? Yes, she did. But uh, we have jumped out of the perfectly functional aircraft and we're falling now at the exact same rate. Just go with me here that, that that's happening. Disregard that I have more mass than most of you and I can spread out more, but Let's just say we're falling side by side at the same rate. And I know the relationship between mass and acceleration. So you just have to kind of set aside all of those things. And I also, therefore, know the relationship between gravitational force and acceleration. But stay with me. We're falling side by side. And I reach into my bucket as we fall. And we're way up there. And so we're going to fall a long, long time. So disregard atmosphere and height and altitude and all of that, and just continue my thought experiment. We're falling side by side, and I reach into my pocket, and I pull out a cue ball or a steel ball, good size, baseball size, softball size, steel ball, or it will work. And and I release it. So we're side by side falling, and I release it. And the ball, assuming that it's going to accelerate to the same speed that we are, will do what? It'll just stay there relative to me and you as we fall, right? With me so far? It accelerates at our speed and it stays in our frame of reference. It doesn't, doesn't go, if anything, it might go slower if it's a little lighter. If it is a softball, it might, because of the relationship between mass an acceleration it, it may but it will not look like it's moving most likely and that's my my point it stays with us and if we look at each other and the ball and we're not able to see the ground remember from last week I put you in a silent car right you can't see the ground if you want to think of clouds you're in clouds you can see me I can see you we're at the same exact Plane, frame of reference, and there's a ball between us. And we're just there together. You can't tell we're falling. I can't tell that we're falling. Our ability to detect gravitational force has just been eliminated. And Einstein didn't do that. He placed people into a falling box. Where they awake inside, they're asleep, and they awake essentially inside the falling box. They don't know the box is falling. But they do have a ball in their pocket, and they pull the ball out, and they let go of it. They're falling. They're in a falling, a free falling state of reference. And they pull the ball out, and they let go. What happens to the ball? It just stays there. And they think they're in what? They cannot tell if they're in a gravity-free environment. Gravity has been eliminated by the frame of reference that they're in. The point is is that a free-falling state or a free-falling reference frame or frame of reference, you're going to see this term used all the time in relativity, free-falling or uniform uh, motion, but free-falling state, of reference and again that's the point a free-falling reference frame will make it very difficult for you to detect gravity now Newton this is quick it's not in my notes I got to watch my time make sure I've got this time to do this but this is a good place to put it that is the earth what is the earth it is a sphere. It's round. If I can build a tower and I can throw something, and I throw it from my tower, say I'm right there, I throw it, I'll start with there. I build a tower that big on the earth. That's pretty big, if you consider how big the earth is, and it's in scale now, and I'm drawing beautifully. And I'm standing here and I throw something, and it goes and it hits right there. Okay, that didn't work, so I build a bigger tower. This, by the way, is 7th grade physics. And I throw again, and it hits right there. I'm going to build a bigger tower, and I'm going to throw again, and that's what it does. And what do we call that? We call that orbit orbit is a free falling state around the earth it's continually falling now eventually it will do what it'll actually fall to the earth but there's a period of time where it is orbit is free falling state a free falling frame of reference around uh, of it's exactly the same as a box and a ball when you see the astronauts on the shuttle and they release a steel ball what does it do It stays there as if there is no gravity. Is there gravity? But it seems they're in a free-falling frame of reference and they can't tell if there's gravity or not. Objects in a free-falling reference frame appear to be unaffected by gravitational force. It is impossible to distinguish free-fall In the presence of gravity from complete absence of gravity. Now, I'll say that again. It is impossible to distinguish free fall in the presence of gravity from the complete absence of gravity. Does that make sense to you? Look at me. Okay, that means we're going to repeat this next week. That'll be okay. You will get it. You will understand that I cannot distinguish free fall in the presence of gravity from not having gravity. They seem the same to me. Does that help? And that happens until the falling box or the parachutists that don't have parachutes hit the ground. That stops the free-falling reference frame. Bang, right there. Stops all reference frames. So last week, what did I have you do? I had you waking up in a silent, smooth-moving vehicle car. With blackened windows, and you had no ability to detect speed. If you weren't here, let me kind of repeat it quickly. Imagine yourself in a car where I, you have black windows. You can hear no engine noise, and you cannot see anything out the windows relative to who, where you are. And it you so you cannot tell the difference. And if you poured a glass of soda and drank it, you would drink it fine. You could not tell. You could put it on the dashboard. You could be stationary or doing 200 miles an hour. You would have no idea which one. No experiment could you do to come to the conclusion that you're moving. So last week I had you waking up in a silent, smoothly moving car with no sound, no shaking, blackened windows. You had no ability to detect speed. In fact, you had no ability to detect uh, that you were moving at all. And no physical experiment could you do that would conclude That you were moving. Today I have you waking up notice how this never go to sleep. Today I've got you around a physicist. I got you waking up in a falling box and you can't detect gravity. There is no experiment that you can perform that will tell you if you are stationary or moving at a very high rate of speed in the car, and likewise there's no physical experiments in the free falling box that allows you to observe gravity. Your frame of reference says, you could be doing 500 miles an hour, you would say, I might not be moving. You could be in a free-falling state, and you would say there is no gravity. No physical experiment whatsoever that can distinguish between a state of rest and a state of constant uniform velocity or a state of free-fall. And what do we live in? We live in a solar system. What's it doing? What's the Earth doing right now? It's moving. How fast is it moving? Pretty fast. You don't think it's moving at all. You can't tell if it's moving. Because you don't know that you're moving. And it's in a galaxy. We're in a spiral arm of the Milky Way galaxy. What's that doing? That's moving. So we are, so so we are in a solar system in an arm of a galaxy that's at a constant velocity, and we can't tell. And that creates what's called a uniform motion or a uniform frame of reference. It's called an inertial frame of reference. You'll see that term all the time. And I'll beat this into you. Uniform motion, very important to these discussions. And to understanding relativity. So here comes, all of that was easy. Here comes the hard part now. The velocity of light, the speed of light, it must be constant for all inertial frame of reference observers. Observers who are in a state of uniform motion with respect to each other. If we're all falling, if we're all in the same black window car, we're all in the same falling box, or we're all in the same car where we can't see out the windows, we are inertial frame of reference observers in uniform motion with respect to each other. And here's what's cool. The speed of light is the same for all observers... In inertial frames of reference, even if the observers are different observers and they're moving towards or away from the light source or each other. In other words, speed of light is not additive. What I mean by that is if, if, I, you, were in, if, if you were in a car uh, doing 50 miles an hour, which way are you going? We'll make you go this way. So you're going, I can't even tell which way I'm going. So we'll make it, we'll make you go this way. Okay. You're in a car going 50 miles an hour. And, and I can make the road go 30 miles an hour. So you're going 50 miles an hour on a road that's moving to think a conveyor belt. So then I can add those two together and I end up with 80 miles an hour. Does that make sense? Speed of light doesn't work that way. It's not additive. If you're on a train doing 200 miles an hour and you shine a flashlight out and uh, somebody else is on an airplane doing a 600 miles an hour and they shine a flashlight out or a light source out, headlamp, I think headlamp, I guess. Speed of light is the same for the people in the train and the people in the plane. Speed of light is always constant, regardless of, your movement. That's important. Speed of light is the same for all observers, even if they are moving towards or away from the light source. It's not additive, it's constant. So, now back to gravity. A free falling reference frame seems to eliminate the force of gravity, doesn't it? But the law of physics, laws of physics, They should be the same in all frames of reference. How is it that I eliminate gravity? Because now i got to ask the question, is gravity really a force? When you came here today, you said to yourself, I'm going to think about gravity on the way to church today. And I've decided that gravity is a force. How many of you did that? Let the record show that no one did it and one person lied. Okay. But you see, Newton said gravity was a force. Einstein does not say that there is such a thing as force. Einstein says that gravity is the same as space-time. What? What? What's he? Make him stop. I miss that kid. Einstein said, or Newton said, gravity force. Einstein said no, I can make I can create a frame of reference where gravity doesn't seem to exist. I can seem to eliminate it. So gravity must not be a force. Gravity is the same as space time. What in the world is space time? Space time is a mathematical equivalence equivalency between space and time. That doesn't help you at all. It didn't help me either when I first heard it. But it will. To make this worse, Einstein further concluded that space-time is curved. And therefore, gravity is actually space-time curvature. Who can understand this? You should see Bonnie. She is covering her face in the front row. It's hilarious. I wish I could film you when I say these things. Okay, I'm going to make it so Bonnie understands. And you will all understand. But I thought about Bonnie because last week she came up to me and said, I don't know what you're talking about and I'm never going to get it. And yes, you are because I'm I'm going to beat you to death until you get it. Think of clear plastic wrap, the clingy plastic wrap. I want you all to get a piece of it. We're going to have an 8 by 8, 8 foot piece of it. And you're going to be on the corner and around the edges. And we're going to stretch our clear plastic wrap out. So far, so good. What are we learning about right now? Gravity. And the fabric of space and space-time. So we have a picture of the saran wrap stretched out flat. You've got that in your head? Hold it tight. Everybody's got to hold it tight. So it's tight and it is. What is it? What am I doing with this saran wrap? I'm stretching it out. Right? God, this is the fabric of the universe. God stretched it out. And I did more things than just that. But he says to you, I stretched it out. And then I want you to. So that's absolutely Flat doesn't have any, it's just completely, perfectly flat. Then I want you to roll a ball across it. How, what, how's the ball going to roll? It's going to roll nice and straight in a straight line. I push it straight, it's going to go straight. The ball's going to go straight. What am I talking about now? Okay. Let the records show for the Internet that I'm talking about time as well as gravity. The ball is now rolling straight. And we roll the ball back and forth across this perfectly tight, flat surface, and it goes straight every single time. Now, what do I do? I get a heavier ball, and I put it on the saran wrap. So I added a larger ball to the plastic wrap, and it's there. I have my ball that I'm going to roll. You're stretching it tight, but what is that ball doing? It is distorting, yes. It is curving the space time the fabric of space. And now, when I roll the other ball, it doesn't go straight, does it? larger ball makes the second ball do what? Curve. And we call that, Einstein calls that what? Gravity. Boy, I wish I had a camera. It will not follow the same original path because the plastic wrap is distorted now. It's curved. And now realize that time is going to slow wherever space-time curvature is greatest to an observer looking into or looking towards an area of strong gravity that has curved the fabric of time, or of space, if you will. So I have a greater curvature there. Gravity is curvature, Einstein says. I'm going to have more distortion, if you will, in the plastic wrap where I have the most gravity. An observer seeing that will watch time in that area run slower. It's called gravitational time dilation. Dilation means distorted. And and this is a big rut row again, right? Time and distance change depending on the relative motion of an observer. It, it, let me put it this way. This is, this is, you're going to think this is a joke. The clock is moving. The observer is moving. Another observer is observing and is also moving, but is moving at a different rate and in a different direction from the first observing observer. So what time is it? That is a relativity-based question. Sounds like a joke, but it's, it's relativity principles. Both observers will measure the speed of light the same, even though they're moving and they're going different directions and they're in different places. And again, the key a Newtonian question here that all comes up, and I'll quit right here before you just fall dead in the chairs. The key question is, is, is there an ultimate observer, an absolute observer, who is sitting in a place where his frame of reference is, is that he can see all of the fabric of space, and he can see all of the time, and all of the light, and all of the mass, and all of the life. And he has a watch. Is there an absolute observer and an absolute time? Newton said there was. Newton was a Christian. Is there one? What does the Bible say? Next week, we will literally repeat this exact lecture in a different way until you all get it. Will you all get it? Yes, look at you. You now know that when the Big Bang happened, what did we get? See, the big bang happened. What did we get? We got saran wrap. And where did it go? It started to stretch out, the saran wrap. And then what went after it, they say, because the saran wrap, they say, expanded at the speed of light. Well, wait a minute. You can't expand at the speed of light, or faster than the speed of light. Sorry. They say the saran wrap expanded hundreds of times faster than the speed of light. But nothing can expand faster than the speed of light. Certainly not saran wrap. But they say it did. And then the mass of the matter then kind of came out afterwards, at or below the speed of light. But that the space, the saran wrap stretched out. So now you know that this is all about plastic wrap. How tough can that be? can't be that tough. Next week we will get it. You will get it. You'll be stunned if you sit down and start thinking about just jumping out of airplanes or falling in elevators or in boxes what happens to gravity? Next, we'll figure out what happens to time. Because time does run slower and different from different frames of reference. What does that mean with respect to distant starlight? Well, that's coming up. Let's rise and be dismissed.